Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headline on CIUT 89.5 FM. I am your host, Anna Lazarus. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current thought leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. For this episode, we welcome Dan Bresnitz, author of Innovation in Real Places. During this episode, he argues success lies in understanding the change structures of the global system of production, and then using those insights to enable communities to recognize their own advantages, which in turn allows them to foster surprising forms of specialized innovation. There are many models of innovation that are far more equitable than that of Silicon Valley. Finally, Dr. Bresnitz applies his insights to the Canadian context to discuss green and sustainable innovation. Professor Dan Bresnitz is known worldwide as an expert on rapid innovation-based industries and their globalization, as well as for his pioneering research on the distributional impact of innovation policy. He is the Chair of Innovation Studies at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy and currently serves as the Clifford Clark Economist of the Canadian Department of Finance, where he is responsible for new economic thinking and the restructuring of the Canadian economy. His recent book, Innovation in Real Places, Strategies for Prosperity in an Unforgiving giving world received numerous accolades, including winning the prestigious 2022 Donor Prize. Great. Well, good morning, Professor Bresnitz. Good morning. Uh, it's nice to have you on. Thank you for answering our call, so to speak. You're most welcome. So I wanted to start off by saying congratulations on the success of your book, Innovation in Real Places, that recently won the Donor Prize here in Toronto. And just to start us off, could you tell us about yourself, how you ended up at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, and what drove you to study policy and then specifically innovation? Okay, that's a a long set of questions. Um, So let me start with um, with a monk, because it's actually the the last and easiest. Um, It was basically (laughs) Jenny Stein. But more importantly, it was a vision of a monk um, as it was described and as we thought about it, well, almost 10 years ago, um, which was a new school trying to do things differently in terms of both global affairs and policy um, in one of the top universities in the world, Canada's top. um, And... um, the idea was also to create innovation policy, political economy of innovation, streaming it. And the idea was, okay, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to really shape uh, the field that I'm really interested in, in a new top school, instead of just, you know, having one more of the same. you and other people should be the judge on on whether it worked or not. So that's how I, but I will have to say it took the monk school several years before we were convinced that this is a place where it can happen. Um, How did I reach innovation policy? Uh, In a strange way, Uh, I was supposed, so I had a software company, back then it was called software companies, not startups. Um, (laughs) <laughs> and uh, 
and I therefore studied something as completely different as possible and thought that what I would really like to be is a uh, we call, used to call it political philosophy um, now I think it's called theory uh, whatever it is but that's basically what I thought I'm going to do um, then I reached MIT uh, and then I discovered um, that A, I'm not that interested in pure theory, but I'm very interested in social change and how it happens. And going back to both Israel, where I was born, and seeing the dramatic change just in a few years after I left to do the PhD, and then seeing how it happens also in Ireland. I don't know how many people remember, but Ireland was supposed to be the great next miracle when people talk about the three eyes, Israel, India, and Ireland, uh, and Taiwan. Um, and I decided that this is, this is fascinating enough to do a whole PhD on. And the rest, as they say, is history. That's a great history. Thank you. So to kind of set the scene for people who may have not written your book yet, how would you define innovation? Uh, and more specifically, what would not be innovation? So let me start by how I ended up writing this book, um, to put it in context. So up to, uh, I've written several books and probably too many papers. And I started, as you might guess from my story before, being very optimistic and positive about innovation-based growth, basically thinking that if a community can achieve it, great things will happen, okay? Then I saw two things. A, that a lot of places, not all, there's a very high variance, but some of the places, not a lot, that are extremely successful in what we call innovation actually became unbelievably unequal economically and socially. For example, Silicon Valley, for example, Israel. So I started to wonder about how this happened. And as I started to wonder, and as I started to research more and more about uh, what we now call global production chains, I would call them global production networks instead, and their impact on how innovation translates to uh, local prosperity, I became really frustrated with the uh, current debate, especially the debate for policymakers, and especially the no debate among policymakers which basically conflated innovation and invention and also became made Silicon Valley, which is just one model of success uh, as the one and only dogmatic uh, things that you have to reach for. And this book therefore tries to offer other options and it starts by reminding us why we care about innovation. So we care about innovation because it's the only way in order to have to have a sustained economic and welfare growth. So this is why we care about it, okay? But that's immediately then tell you that innovation is not invention, okay? Invention is the act of coming up with a new idea. Innovation is the act of putting ideas in order to have new or improved products and services in what we call the market or in society. So it comes in all stages from you know, putting that idea into reality for the first time, 
to constantly improving it, to recombining it, to figuring out different ways to do something with it, uh, to figuring out ways to make it better or how to produce it in a better way or even how to uh, sell it in different ways. And indeed, if what you care about is growth and economic welfare, it's the fact that it's continuous over a long period of time that is much more important than coming up with the act of first invention. So for example, you and I are talking in Zoom. Um, I don't know how many even remember that before COVID and that not that long before COVID, we would do everything in our power to avoid teleconferencing. Because A, especially if, if this was a seminar instead of you and I talking, we'll have to go to a specialized room, which cost unbelievable amount of money. And the final product would be awful. And by the way, this is not a new invention or innovation. Uh, teleconferencing is at least 50 years old. And yet, suddenly, COVID happened, and we all moved to Zoom or Teams, and it's good enough. Um, it works. And even more importantly, we don't even think about the cost. It's like electricity and water. It became a utility. And it completely changed humanity life. Just in this country and many other countries, because of Zoom, we can continue to do education. We can continue to do most of our work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Complete transformation for the better. Um, but it happened only after about 50 years in which millions, probably hundreds of millions of engineering hours were put into improving data communication, improving graphic processes, improving central CPUs, GPUs, memory, uh, data, software algorithm to the level that now we don't even think about it. It says, just open it, do it, it works. And that's the time it's changed society. Not because 50 years ago, somebody said, oh, I have a camera, I have a microphone, and there's that thing called a computer. Maybe we can talk in video. Okay, that's that's really interesting. I think there's an organic uh, argument for innovation being need-based. We get a sense from your book that you believe Canada underperforms on innovation. How how does this happen? How does Canada underperform? And more importantly, can you explain the why of this underperformance? What is it rooted in? Sure. So let me be slightly more blunt. Uh, it's not a think uh, whether Canada underperforms. Canada does horrifically in innovation, by the way, not in invention, which is important. If we were doing badly in both, it wouldn't have been a surprise. But we are doing unbelievably badly in innovation. And even more importantly, if you look at all the other metrics from the human development metrics to metrics that check the complexity of your economy. So just the use of knowledge and high skills, Canada is doing awfully. And Canada is the only OECD and G7 country in which some of the main metrics, for example, the amount of business R&D or R&D uh, done by businesses with money from businesses has been going down annually every year for 20 years, maybe more. 
Um, and now Canada is so low that we are below Poland, um, which is basically we're quickly reaching developing countries level. You add that to things like the human development index where until 95, we were number one, now we are number 15 or 16. Complexity index where, you know, we always was resource rich. So we weren't supposed to be number one, but we were number 20. Now we're about number 44, which is again, just below what uh, the UN and the world will considered no longer a developing a developed country, not, a, you know, we're not a developing country, but we certainly, we think of ourselves as a mm -hmm. G7, but from the point of view of innovation and just the use of knowledge, we're not. And we're going down for over 20 years. Um, and the re the, the, and this is happening in exactly the same years with our higher education and research, public research capacity actually went up and we are one of the best with the most highly educated labor force in the world. So the problem is very clear. Uh, the problem is in the private sector. Canadian businesses, just apart from very specific sectors, what you might call the startup sector, uh, just, just don't, don't engage, forget with innovation, with new knowledge, capital equipment, and all the rest. And the reason is that they have managed to make money and profits without doing this. And then they use us, highly educated Canadian, um, as a way to even further reduce the risk. We take extremely highly educated Canadian, put them on old equipment and old technology, but because we are so highly educated and have high skills, we're just good enough. So Canadian business are sort of not horrifically in productivity. You run this machine for 20 something years, you have a serious problem. And with the changing geopolitics and our wish to become green, which by the way, will never happen unless a private business change, because by definition, being green needs that you at least need to buy new technologies. Forget innovating, but at least buy them and use them. Um, and we have a problem, a serious problem. And it's the focus is the private mm. business sector. Okay, so Canada underperforms, but you do have in your book examples of countries who have succeeded in creating, or at least in performing extremely well from an innovation perspective. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an example and kind of break down how they do it? How do they get there? So uh, let's first move one step back, right? Remember that I said not everyone should look like Silicon Valley. So what happened since around the 80s is what we call globalization, but or this wave of globalization. But what is interesting in this wave of globalization is that we have also fragmented or uh, basically took, if you think about before, right? If you needed to produce a car, you needed to produce everything in one place and you have massive assembly plants, Detroit, Japan, you know, we all, now, in order to produce everything that we now use for this talk, um, we have sliced it and diced it 
So different places are now not just focused on specific industries, but on specific stages of a production in an industry. So let me give you an example in semiconductors. Um, you look at uh, Tel Aviv, Silicon Valley, Seoul in Korea, Taiwan, Xinjiang in Taiwan, Shenzhen in China. We're all having amazingly successful semiconductor industries. And if you look at the name of the companies in most of those places, it's the same companies that work. Yet, so you might think it's, it's more or less the same industry. Yet, in, if you actually look at what happens in each state, in each place, you see that the activities that are actually the innovation that they do in each place is as different as, as as you can imagine. So in Silicon Valley in Israel, they come up with new ideas to put on silicon. We now know, thanks to the fact we can't buy computer cars or anything else, that the only place in the world that know how to take those ideas and produce silicon, new chips, is Taiwan. Korea focuses on specific niches. So every smartphone that you buy, no matter who produces it, they get the second highest profit margins. And nobody will know how to innovate and produce the constantly new electronics that we use from smartphone to drones to whatever without the companies in Shenzhen that know how to take constantly changing materials, tens of thousands of components, and figure out how to actually produce something that works in a price you're willing to pay. You now look at it, and what you see is, therefore, that in order to excel in each one of those stages, you need uh, different skills, uh, different innovational capacities, different finance system, and at least different relationship with a globe, with the economy, global economy. And at least as importantly, you also employ different people in smaller or larger number and let's call it reimburse or incentivize or give him wages and money in completely different ways. And in some places, you employ very few people, like Silicon Valley right now, you employ very few people. Most of them are high-level R&D, a graduate of your best university, so not the people you would really worry about. They get amazing wages, which will make them a millionaire, and basically lottery ticket in terms of stock or stock options that might make them billionaires. There were financiers and a few celebrity chefs, great, but the rest, no. I mean, they, they are on the road to nowhere and everything around them becomes more and more expensive. So they're actually on the road, really the road to nowhere. Uh, you look at places like Taiwan, they actually have become more egalitarian and the distribution of wealth is better than it was before, uh, better social mobility, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We have to take that into account when we look at successes, okay? So success, some places, and the reason is Israel is one of the most successful places on earth in looking like Silicon Valley. Great success, massive amount of monies, technologies, whatever but it's so concentrated that it has become one of the most unequal societies in the OECD from being the second most equal, okay? So the places 
that have succeeded, succeeded in different ways. Some of them knowingly thought about it as stages. Some of them did not know it, do it knowingly, but says, okay, this is the resource we have. Those are the political constraints. This is more or less what we want our companies to do, right? Even if I don't know what will be the technologies. And they built uh, a road to get there uh, with a lot of public policy. Um, but one of the most important things that they had and by the way, it was in traditional industry, innovation in traditional industries like shoe manufacturing, all the way to you know ICT and biotech. Um, they had a vision of a pragmatic vision of what is a success. So, what kind of companies, who they employ, what they sell the global markets, and then they sort of reverse engineered from that what they need to do in order to have those kind of companies. And then they start experimenting in developing those companies and those national institutions and those skills, knowing where they want to go. So when they see, they, they, they could figure out what works and what doesn't, instead of just, oh, we are not working very well. Let's copy the latest trend from the US. Maybe it will work. And let's try it for three years and not figure out how do we know if it changed or not. Okay. The examples you give us uh, come from a variety of places with a variety of different governments. Do you think perhaps that our democratic system, or at the very least the way our institutions are built, is slowing down our capacity to create innovation, or at the very least to put in place a framework for innovation? I think, well, both democracies and autocracies are successful, if you actually look. And remember, the book looks also at the local level, not just the national. Uh, so it's you can even be successful at the local level where the rest or a lot of the national level doesn't work very well. For example, Italy, okay? Which is part of the reason why I put a case from Italy there. Um, the problem in Canada was that we were in a complete denial until very recently about what doesn't work. So if you look at a federal budget for about 20 years, the word productivity, which is one of the most important things if you want growth, you have to talk about productivity, was not mentioned once. Um, we constantly said that we're bad in innovation and then put all the money on invention, uh, hoping that miracles will happen instead of saying, okay, why do Canadian business prefer not to engage with innovation? Um, and somehow they stay very profitable. Um, Maybe we need to look at that and figure out ways to both, you know, give them incentives to innovate, but also maybe change, as you said, the frameworks that allow them to make very handsome profits uh, without engaging in innovation and without engaging in real competition. We never did that. So it's not a surprise. We never, <laughs> we never succeed in fixing it. Okay, that's fair. Um, 
can you okay just to take a step back i think it would be helpful for our listeners if we could break down the four stages of innovation-based growth which you describe in your book Mm -hmm. so what are the four stages and from those what are the main lessons for policymakers let me be brief because i'm also aware of a time let's think about it from the point of invention to the point that we have a constantly improving product or service okay that's how you should think about those stages so the first stage is a stage in which what it's basically novelty is what we all now dream about because the media is obsessed about it it's where new ideas invention become innovation for the very first time okay silicon valley israel is our examples Uh, The second stage is um, what you might call um, design and prototyping, okay? So remember that I mentioned uh, Taiwan when we talked about semiconductors? So it's great that there is a lot of uh, new, let's call them design houses. So companies that design new wonderful semiconductors in the U.S. and Israel or in Canada, but somebody then has to take this and make it into a real, you know, system on cheap or semiconductor that actually works. Uh, The Taiwanese, as we now know, are the only one who knows how to do that. Okay, and this is true in all industries. Uh, It is true in high-end shoes, it's true in textiles, It's true in almost every consumer or commercial good. It's, as we now, everybody, I think, start to understand, it's also true in vaccines, right? It's great that somebody coming with a molecular, but we now need to produce it into the tunes of billions. How do we do that, right? So that's one. The second is um, second generation uh, innovation and component improvement so remember my story about zoom it's great so somebody invented the technology and let's say somebody a part of that technology was the digital camera back in the days it would be something about the size of a room and really expensive you need to constantly innovate on it until now you have you know this is a phone and it's even thicker, right? Because it has a protector. And this is the camera. Somebody has to actually innovate to make this into a camera, which is by the way, much better than the camera I had as a child when I bought even a professional camera with those huge lenses. And the fourth is, yeah, this is uh, um, until very recently, 10 or 15 years ago, maybe slightly more, Um, whatever what we have in this phone or any smartphone will be under uh, export control from the US um, and Japan because it considered, you know, military, new military technology was that good and it'll be huge. Um, If you remember the Sony PlayStation, at some point there was, uh, yeah, the cell, the the CPU called the cell was under export control and North Korea indeed stole it because you could use it to you know have a, a missile um, 
targeted missiles. Well, this can do more than just targeted missiles. Somehow we needed to move to a way and find people that can produce what was, was this is basically a supercomputer, constantly changing supercomputer with constantly changing materials, not just the component in, and figure out how to produce it in a way that it works, it's reliable, in a price, constantly change it. Um, that's a huge amount of innovation. And again, as we now try to bring manufacturing back to North America, we discovered that it's not just you know machines that do that. You actually need a huge amount of production engineers, a huge amount of innovation. So those are the four stages from I came up with idea to I'm selling you this for a few hundred dollars. So given that background in the Canadian context, do you think perhaps Canada is too large of a country to pursue excellence in a specific stage of innovation? Could there be a case for developing um, or at least uh, creating greater powers for provinces and then going at the local level to create this innovation? So remember, as a few minutes ago, I said the paper is all about regions. So obviously, I believe that regions can do it. In terms of Canada, I think that we have to understand that Canada is not only big, but it's very diverse and have a lot of, let's call it capacities that we can build upon. And what might work for Toronto, which might be similar to what worked for Montreal and Vancouver, is completely different than my, my work for Newfoundland. Okay, what works, and even forget Newfoundland, Northern Ontario. Um, so we need to figure out and allow and create a system in which different places indeed experiment in developing models in different stages in different industries, see what actually works, scale this up, and try, try again. But yes, one of the good thing about Canada being so huge and so diverse is that we can actually experiment in several industries and several stages and tailor them to the specific locales. Okay. Um, and so just based off your work, what particular stages of innovation do you think specific Canadian regions should pursue? For example, you you know, you gave us Toronto, Northern Ontario. What would you see if you were able to throw a bunch of pilot projects around? What would you like to see them work on? So I think that right now we are so low that we have to have reasonable expectations. So let's talk about critical minerals instead of going through everything. Let's talk about critical minerals and medical, biomedical, okay? Softer, eh, we already have too much conversation about that. Critical minerals and all resource-based, by the way, from wood to critical minerals, I think that we can start to, we now are basically the country which dig or cut things, stabilize them to the minimum, and then ship them as fast as possible in order for people to put knowledge and do what we call value added. And then we buy them back. So British Columbia has produced most more wood than 
every place on earth, including, you know, the biggest producers of, and yet we don't have any say in pulp and paper. We now all over Canada don't have wood for renovation. And the reason is we don't do anything. We just cut the wood, even sometimes not the whole wood, and ship that part as far away as possible to somebody who actually know something of what to do it and bring it back. We are in a very high risk that this will happen exactly the same in critical minerals. We'll just dig them from the ground and allow other places to apply knowledge. Instead, and by the way, knowledge that we will develop in our universities, it's already happened in electric batteries and electric vehicles. Instead, it will be nice if, you know, we move one or two places up, okay? So we might not create the new electric vehicle of the future, but at least we'll know what to do with those critical minerals and how to produce components with them. Maybe we can develop an industry around the mining of those critical minerals with technologies for mining, use of drones, automated mines, okay? Um, the same going for medical. I don't think that we should even imagine that we can have Pfizer's, multiple Pfizer's in this country. However, if you look at Pfizer or Moderna and you look at actually how they produce their stuff, most of it is produced by Swiss companies or Korean companies or other companies, very much in the same way that the Taiwanese produces semiconductors for the world. We can definitely win in that game. So let the US have Pfizer. I don't know how many people actually really employ with good wages. And we will have a biomedical TSMC employing tens of thousands of engineers and technicians with very good jobs and producing all the new vaccines and regenerative medicine and uh, um, personalized medicine, which are the wave of the future in medical um, production. And we will be the place that know how to do that and innovate in the production. By the way, if we do that and actually produce those places, also our biggest researchers, best minds that come with molecules but now have no place to actually do a prototype, will suddenly have a prototype. So maybe we'll even have stage one, but don't focus on that because we won't win. Focus on stages where we can win and we can have massive local prosperity for a long period of time, instead of just um, you know what we do now, which is either dreams which we'll never achieve, and if we'll achieve, we'll create massive inequality, or foreign direct investment in which we open facilities for other companies without any knowledge and positive innovation spillovers happening in Canada. We just employ a few hundred people. Given that you mentioned in the Canadian context, at least the importance of businesses and big businesses and how they are slowing down in our case, uh, innovation because of the lack of R&D. What can we do to attack that aspect of it? What can what policies should we be putting in place to make sure that we're incentivizing businesses to invest and also to employ locally here in Canada? So first, and I think this is very important, um, we need to and I think we're starting to do that. We need to actually 
own our problem and says we have a problem okay and then both incentivize but also demand that business change behavior okay and hold them accountable in terms of incentivizing them um I think that this government again I can't talk a lot about it because it's in the works as they say but there's a declaration of creating an agency that that's will be its focus it's also a humble agency which I will highly recommend because anyone who told who will tell you that for this systemic long-term problem which is everywhere in Canadian economy they have a just one trick which will solve everything with just one program they're either delusional or they're just lying um you look at other countries they created an agency independent agency so it's not politics but technocratic and that business and society knew that going to stay there for a long period of time with the ability to experiment so there are a few things that we know would work like more direct grants um more education about the, the need for intangibles right owning the knowledge um scale-ups mentoring but even more importantly we need to experiment and find what works in Canada and as we just discussed discussed before what works in different places and different industries in Canada and then tail over programs so it's going to be a long process of experimentation hopefully we are on the first step but you know uh in a year or two I can tell you whether we're doing the first step correctly and then in a few years after that we know whether we are actually experimenting or whether we're in yet another dead end all right so we'll have to check in with you in a few years um no problem I'm here how how do you link innovation to sustain sustainable economic development obviously they're linked um but just tangibly how are we taking this innovation and ensuring that we're creating something that is long-term sustainable no worries then let, let's talk about greening our economy and in a sustainable way and um, because this is one of a one of a one of the thing that makes me lose sleep at night so i'll be blunt currently with our businesses being not not only not the first but usually not the second sometimes the third in the third wave of trying out and buying new technologies I see no way in which Canada actually transform itself into becoming a green economy fast enough forget about being innovator and pioneers because the first step in becoming green by definition means that you need to buy new technologies new capital equipment figure out how to work with it okay before you innovate in green. right now our businesses if they stay on course and they have been staying on course for over 20 years are not going to do that they will talk about it they'll do some of it but it's just not going to be in scale and speed that is needed so Canada is a green economy I mean it's lovely that we talk about it ain't going to happen unless we change that so it's already telling you something what we need to do 
we must change the way that Canadian business engage with new technologies and capital equipment. Okay? Find a way to make them first movers or almost first movers, okay? Then comes the questions of how you innovate in the green technologies themselves and how um, you succeed in doing that and where you want to succeed in doing that. We already talked a little bit about critical minerals, right? So it's one thing to become the source of, you know, good crit green critical materials, meaning we don't have child exploitation when we take them from the ground. We don't create so much pollution taking green from the ground, critical materials that we actually it would have been better if we just kept them on the ground because we destroyed half of Canada or half of Africa, okay? That's, we're probably being managed to do that. Whether we'll be able to and have a strategic plan of doing something with them and develop industries based on those critical material, at least in some areas and in some stages where we can become global leader for a long period of time, it's an open question. The time to develop them was probably two years ago. We didn't, but I think there's a window of opportunity of another two or three years. I have not seen anything that suggests that on the federal or in case of Ontario, the provincial level, we actually have such a strategic view. And without such a strategic view is going, you know, to explore a new, a new very rough sea without knowing where you want to go and taking no GPS or compass. So we'll get lost and nothing will happen. Okay, so we need to do that and figure it out. Now, in terms of a positive, uh, Sustainable Development Technology Canada in the last few years have been one one off, if not the most effective uh, organization to spur innovation in Canada. And they are doing it all in Canada among all green technologies and by way in all stages of production. The problem they have, or we, not they, I should say, we as Canada, is that in order for all those companies to really become global leaders, um, and in order for the smaller companies to grow and stay in Canada, Canada needs to be a system in which you can deploy all those new technologies, play with them, right? And learn, not just come up with the idea, the idea work when you find out there's no customers, no place to deploy them, and you need to move somewhere else to deploy them. Currently, the government is awful at procurement of new technologies. And not surprisingly, because they behave just like the government, also Canadian businesses. So what happened is when you have Canadian companies that actually develop something and they want to deploy it and make it better and sell it to the world, and they found out that all their customers are in the US or Europe, not to talk about China, it is not clear why in the growth stage, which is when they produce all those good jobs, they should stay in Canada. And so just to end on a slightly more positive note, do you have any resources mm -hmm. people could go and read upon if they want to know more about innovation, if they want to get involved, what should they be looking into or reading? 
so a uh and by the way i just want to if you want to be a positive yes the only reason i'm still talking about it is because we are we should be doing so much better we have mm -hmm. the world's best researchers best human capital uh if we just allow them canadian would love to excel and innovate it also means more interesting jobs with higher wages mm -hmm. yes and we have everything that is needed once again that was dr dan bresnitz you've been listening to beyond the headlines on ciut 89.5 fm Many thanks to our guest for joining our episode on innovation in the Canadian context. Today's show was produced by Anna Lazarus. The views expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out the podcasts of all of our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of the show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines you could also check us out on facebook or instagram and if you like today's show feel free to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airways